Um, okay, so so that's that's all of the preamble. Um, so now we'll talk a little bit about uh, the the plot quickly, kind of maybe, and then our thoughts. So, um, so here's what I'll say though: is that this movie is, you know, maybe conveniently is the right word, but this movie is broken down into certain um, chunks. Uh, mm-hmm. We have essentially the Dawn of Man sequence at the beginning, where essentially a group of apes um, sort of fight over territory and land and discover how to use uh, bones as tools and what that leads to. And then this the cut that we just talked about, the, uh, the Dawn of Man cut, uh, jumps well, well, well into the future. Um, and then we've got this... Th- this one isn't named, but I just called it the Searching for the Monolith chunk. Um, sure. Where we have uh, Dr. Haywood, is it Haywood Floyd? Yeah, Haywood Floyd. Haywood Floyd. Is uh, essentially on a mission that we don't necessarily know what it is until we get there. And uh, there's been some anomalies on Clavius, and it has to do with this monolith that we got to see in the Dawn of Man sequence. Um, and then we cut to, uh, I believe it is called 18 Months Later, uh, which is the, the Jupiter mission. And this yeah. is the bulk of the This film. is actually 2001 now. So we were in 1999 before that, and then six million years, or four million years, I think. I thought it was, four, yeah, four million, yeah. Yeah, sorry, four million. Um, and then, and this is, like, this is the big chunk of the movie, uh, which yeah. is with... Um, uh, with Dave and Frank and and Hal Nine Thousand, and they are on the way to Jupiter, um, and uh, and uh, well, we'll talk. I I don't I don't know how much I want to say now, except for they're on a ship, and uh, there's three other crew members who are in this sort of like hibernation state um, until they get there, um, and then there's uh, the Stargate sequence. Well, yeah. Oh, oh, so there's there's intermission, and then there's there's oh, ha- right. how 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 showing uh his true colors and then yes the 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 jupiter and beyond the infinite sequence um so uh here's here's what i was thinking because there's there's too much to talk about and and who knows if we'll get to all of it but i think Mm -hmm. maybe what might make the most sense for this movie is to try to take it like uh chunk by chunk yeah because they're all so different and there's kind of so much happening different in each of those moments very much so, yeah. So, um, so maybe we should just start off with the fact that the Dawn of Man sequence uh, includes both of our unsung hero. Um, yes. So, um, yeah, this was my I did I did one in front of the camera and one behind. Um, yeah, as more or less as well. So, yeah, Daniel Richter. Um, so, the mime that uh, was hired on the spot by Stanley Kubrick uh, to create these ape characters, these ape man characters. Um, what a talent that is. Um, so, but you know, you, you might know more about him than I do. I, I tried to reread um, as much as I could of some of the couple of sections of this book that I have on the making of 2001. Uh, it's called space odyssey. Um, and it's by Michael Benson and it's a great book on the making of this movie. Um, and they go quite a bit into discussing, um, Daniel Richter and his work with, uh, Stuart Freeborn who created the ape suits. Uh, he also would go on, uh, Stuart Freeborn to create 
Chewbacca and other creatures in Star Wars. Lovely. Um, I mean, all I, I mean, all, what I know about Richter is that he, um, I think it was something American Mime Troop, uh, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think his approach to it was great, and I, I really liked hearing him talk about not just wanting to, um, not just wanting to have the troop be able to recreate and act as if they were these these apes at the beginning but that they all had a personality or a characteristic and Mm -hmm. and even if we don't really i mean you know uh moon watcher i think is the most distinct he's the one we follow he discovers the the how to use the bone and stuff but um i think that was a really smart thing to do um because it would be it would be very easy to just go okay let's go to the zoo let's watch the apes let's 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 learn how to look like them and then leave it at that but right. i think by trying to give them character was was a nice touch and he worked with Stuart Freeborn and to be able to uh, control like uh with his tongue and stuff like that how to move the faces um they had like different triggers and bands and stuff inside the masks that would move the brows that would move the uh um, that would move the mouths, especially yeah. in different ways. And so it's, and would like move up, you know, like one side of the snout. Um, I couldn't find all the details, uh, oh. in, of that in the book, but it's really fascinating. And, uh, I, it's, you sort of read the description and go, it's hard to wrap your head around it all. Just hearing it described. Um, but it's pretty effective. I mean, um, this was the same year as Planet of the Apes. You look at the Planet of the Apes masks, and they're good too. But I don't know. There's something that feels more authentic about these to me. Well, I, I, I well, first of all, I agree. I absolutely agree on that. And and obviously, it's different because you know the, the, the apes have got to talk, and I'm sure they've got to look a bit more different. <laughs> um, but but you're right, and I, I I kept thinking too, like just just how much I miss practical effects, practical oh, yeah. mask making and, and practical costumes and, and, and pieces like this. And I, you know, do, are they perfect? No. And do they, and like, do they really, they, I mean, in a very real way, it does look, they do look like people in suits in the sense that like the, the, even when they, even with the posture really? adjustment, you, you can tell mm-hmm. there are people in there, but like the quality of, of the, I don't even want to call them costumes. I'm not even sure what the right word is, but the makeup and the mm-hmm. everything about it. And the, and again, I think that's why, it, you know, Richter and his crew are, I think are, are so important. There is the, it's the attitude behind it. It's the, it's what they put into it. And I think the, you know, makeup and actor combo there really helped me to believe this whole, this whole opening chunk. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I, these, and, you know, there's, there's, for example, there's this great bit of, I guess, well, it is definitely acting where they have this, just this close up of moon watcher and he just moves his eyes from side, one side to the other and then up. And you can just sense, you know, the fear of the loss of the sun, you know, the fear of going into another night, not knowing if they're going to survive it. Yeah. Um, and it's really effective. It's really powerful. And you know that they really are characters. Each, each one of the actors who played one of the eight people, um, they really sought to bring a character to, to these, 
to these creatures. And uh, it's really effective. And having and the fact that Richter said to Stuart Freeborn, I got to be able to do this. I got to be able to do this. I got to be able to do this. And it's like, well, we can't because the technology doesn't exist. Well, figure it out. And they did. Um, and there's that ingenuity of, of this movie that you just see throughout all of this, you know, how um, they came up with these incredible kinds of things just through that already exists. Do something that doesn't already exist. Yeah. Oh, I, yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's pretty astonishing. Well, and I, and I, I just wanted to kind of take that, uh, a bit further, because I mean, you talk about just like them having personalities. There's the the moment where the group of them are in the caves, and there's mm-hmm. there's specifically a group of four of them kind of sitting on the same wall, and yeah, they're making sounds, and and like one of I, it might even be Moonwatcher. I can't remember at the, you know right at this moment, but like one of them gets really defensive, and the the other ones kind of complacently start making sounds too, and it's like you totally get the cut. It's like, well, what do we do now? And one's like, I don't know. Let me think. And like, okay, I'm sorry, sorry. And like. Yeah. There's such, I mean, I, I love the storytelling that we're getting without actual words. And like, it's, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know that this is my favorite chunk of the movie, but I think I love what's being done with so little. Um, and I also, definitely. And, well, oh, no, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that's kind of the template that is carried throughout the rest of the movie too, where it's just, you don't get a lot of dialogue. You get a lot of just sort of people in a room together, <laughs> you yeah. know, if they're even in a, even in a space together, you know, they there's, they're doing things. They're doing little bits of business sometimes, but so much of this is visual and you don't need to know exactly what the conversation is all the time. Cause sometimes the conversation is just like techno jargon. Yeah. You know, <laughs> totally. <laughs> So it might as well be ape grunts, you know, um, at some of those later points in the film too. And I think that, um, it's sort of, uh, sets the tone of the whole movie here, you know, in this opening sequence, uh, for that sort of lack of dialogue and for a lot of visual sense is what you're going to be in for with this film. Well, and one thing I noticed, um, you know, and it's it's so different because I think this is the third time I've seen this movie, and and okay. you know, and the first time for the purposes of a podcast and really trying to take notes and and understand right. it to the best of my abilities. Um, but there was something I know, and I, I I could be wrong, but I I I think what I one of the things I really like about this opening is that the the camera work is that the the camera either doesn't move. Or it's mm-hmm. very slow, very slow pans, like very yeah. slow. Um, yep. And I and it was great because it like I also like I I know I'm I'm not sure how much of this was practical or or like matte paintings or what, but like I thought I I I, <laughs> I, I can fill you in. Oh yeah, um, go ahead. Um, yeah, the reason the camera is still is because they were using uh, rather than a rear projection, they were using a front projection technique that required so. There was uh, the 3M company <laughs> made all these screens. So all the backgrounds are screens that are are pro- uh, slides, literally still photos, you know, like slides. Gotcha. Projected um, onto these screens. 
Okay. And so the, these screens were made of like these little glass beads. Okay. So they had to do this rig where the projector and the camera had to be at certain angles to each other. And there's this huge rig. They essentially, they couldn't move the camera <laughs> if there was, cause they would have to move this whole rig. Um, and so when you see a pan across a landscape, you notice there's nothing else in it. Yeah. Usually, right? Yes. Yes. It's just the landscapes. It's because the camera is just moving, you know, across this photo. <laughs> Well, and it, um, this projected photo. It's pretty astonishing how authentic it looks, though. No, absolutely. And and yeah. but it was it was great too. Like just, I, I it just it, from a it, it's really restrained, and especially for where mm-hmm. the movie's gonna go later. Um, I, I I thought it was really great to make it to make this even feel a bit different. Uh, in terms yes. of how how the camera moved. Mm-hmm. Um. So. Okay, so I think we gotta just come right out and talk about the monolith. Yeah. Uh and and that it's just it's just there. Now and now I I did, you know, I watched uh, uh a couple of the special features on, on the Blu-ray sure. I have, and I know uh Arthur Clark talked about how you know it was almost like a like a glass screen that had like it, it was actually going to show images and be more more literal about what people were getting from it, what people were learning. In the book, it kind of is that. Um, I read the book years and years ago, so I'm just going by memory. But um, the monolith was sort of like a, you think of it almost like a glass, um, you know, same shape, just imagine it made out of plexiglass. Yeah. Okay. And that was originally what they were going to do, um, but they, it just was completely impractical to make it work. Um, and they're like um, just colors and stuff that would show up in it. Okay. Um, and that is still in the book though in the sequels, it's not, it's just the black monolith in the sequels, which is interesting that, uh, Clark even changed it to match the movie, um, for, for the sequels. Um, well, I'm glad, I, I think obviously I'm glad they, they didn't do that. I do. I, I think, yeah, I it's think, far more effective yes. and iconic, I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but the, so the, I mean, the monolith shows up and obviously it's this, it's this, this foreign uh, piece of something that's now there. And, and obviously the, the, the apes don't know what to do with it. And there's this, you know, being afraid to touch it and, and everything. And, and it was just this, it was just this really, it's just, it's such an interesting moment that it comes out of nowhere. And it's like, and I, and in a way, obviously what, what this leads to is it leads to moon watcher grabbing the bone and playing with the bone and smashing things and realizing, ah, oh, I've learned something. I've got this, yeah, this newfound gift to to use this this um this bone as a weapon, and this is also where we get the I think I think this is the first time that we get the no 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 this is no, I said the opening we get the Zarathustra music, but here yes. it's it's really really prevalent. Um, mm-hmm. and so I you know it's it's really interesting because I wanna I wanna say because I think this thing about the movie too is that here the monolith feels like inspiration. The monolith feels like yes. Like, uh, like you, you are going to get something from me, mm-hmm. but then it's interesting because later, and I, I don't mean to cut ahead too much, but then there's the next segment. There's the stuff with Haywood and, and going to Clavius and like talking about it and going to see it. And it's the group of, the group of explorers standing in front of it and they're about to get their picture taken. But then that, 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 that buzzing starts to yeah. happen and, 
and it, you know, it's deafening. And then obviously we get a hard cut to 18 months later. So the, the ever changing your properties of the monolith are, are really just really interesting. And I think that's what makes this movie so hard to nail down is, is the, the, like, honestly, like how, how, the monolith takes not not literal shape, but what how it shapes certain people at different times. Yes, well, uh, the supposedly think of the one on the moon as more like a beacon um, to say, "Hey, you know, um, these ape people have left the Earth. They finally figured out how to get beyond their their bonds of." of their planet. So it sends a signal to Jupiter, um, where the next monolith is waiting that will actually give them the ability to move forward truly. So, so, so that, that's that, my understanding no, of no. it. Cause that's, that's, and that's kind of drawn from, from Arthur Clark's original, um, story that this came from the Sentinel, the Sentinel. Yeah. Where, yeah, so they they find this like pyramid on the moon, and it essentially was the burglar alarm <laughs> going out to the cosmos saying, "Uh oh, the humans are loose. <laughs> you know, watch out." So now, um, is it is it your understanding or, or 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 your opinion that there is more than one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in in my opinion, the one that uh, is uh, with the dawn of man is the whatever beings are kind of controlling this. Um, put it there for the purpose of, of giving humans the next step. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As like teaching the next step. It's like, then we're going to leave you alone for a while. And 4 million years ago, it's cause it says something like that. Um, that, that, uh, the, the monolith on the moon was buried there 4 million years ago. Yeah. Is what, is what they say. Yes. So they excavate around it. Um, and it's deliberately buried. So I don't, whether that's the same one as the one that was on earth in the beginning, that's possible. It could have been just taken off the earth and then they, the, whatever beings are controlling this, put it in the moon. Um, and then they find it, which it sends a signal then to the one that, and the book is a little bit more clear that the one near Jupiter or Saturn in the book, but, um, but near Jupiter is gigantic. It's absolutely massive. Um, so it's, it's like a hundred times bigger than, than the ones we've already seen. Um, so I, it's, that's a little bit more clear there, but, um, well, and that's, and that's, that's, I think that's kind of part and parcel with what Kubrick was going for. Cause I, um, I'm just looking through this here. Uh, that Kubrick wanted to be more cryptic and that he said that, yeah. you know, bi- that the film is basically a visual nonverbal experience that it's going to hit the viewer at an inner level of consciousness, just as yeah. music does or painting. And I think, I think he definitely wanted to, to, yeah, like I said, to minimize the amount of, of obviousness that you would get from the book and leave it oh, more yeah. open to interpretation. And you know, the book is fairly uh it's fairly cryptic in itself it doesn't explain everything i think it's a little bit more clear about certain things like what's really going on in the uh hotel room at the end for example yeah Yeah. but um it's uh it's been a while since i've read it but um 
my th- it's it's kind of been I don't know if maybe it's colored by the fact that I've read the book, um, but I've always thought of it as different monoliths um, because of because of that. I I don't know yeah, or no, if it's. I think that makes sense. I mean, and I mean, I I can't say that I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm not certain about this. I just know, I know there are parts of it towards the end where the, the monolith is, or a, the, a, whatever monolith is, is floating through space. And that part of, um, part of Dave at the end is kind of following it. It seems to, it seems to be what prompts him to go through the, the light tunnel there. And so that's why I was like, well, is this the same one that's been like, kind of leading this one person to this one moment. But, but I obviously, I, I don't know that that's true. I, I just know that we see a monolith flying at the end of it. And it's hard to know yeah. where we are with all of that. Well, I imagine the one that's on the moon is still on the moon, <laughs> you know, even 18 months later, unless it suddenly just was, you know, transported out of there, which, Hey, who knows? Could be I mean, the part of it is it doesn't necessarily matter. Either. Yeah. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and then you have, of course, you know, the monolith appearing the last time, uh, in, in the hotel room as well. Yeah. Um, but that we'll get to that. Um, what I find interesting, okay. Back in, in the, um, in the dawn of man sequence here. Um, so the first use they, that moon watcher and his tribe find for using the bones is to eat, you know, yes. to survive. Right. Uh-huh. That's then like we assume within days it's like, Oh, now we can kill other people too. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's, it's sort of like this immediate human, um, move from my survival to having to destroy the other. Well, and it's funny because at that, I I wrote down, um, I, I, so I, I wrote down before I said carnage and, and that things will never be the same. And that was in reference to them hunting essentially. Yes. Uh-huh. But then I wrote my next thing was, well, what do I said? What do we all want in life? An advantage, something that puts us ahead. And I go, and even though it's as brutal as what they're doing, that's what this it, it's an advantage. It's the thing that the other people don't have. And it's what's going to keep this this tribe, this group of apes in control over this, you know, essentially this watering hole, this this what seems to be a key, you know, the key part of yeah. the land. Yeah. And that's what they're fighting over is, uh, it, the book, they, they're like really fighting. They make it really clear. They're fighting over the water. <laughs> um, and I think that's fairly clear in the movie, but it's a little bit more open to interpretation. Yeah. And, um, yeah, but that sequence where he's, you know, just sort of hitting the bones, uh, you know, the, the animal bones yeah. and crashing them apart. That is just so stunning and powerful in that music. And for me, this whole movie is a little bit like that piece of music. It's a little bit, it's someone, uh, on the special features described the movie as music in the sense, like an opera. Yeah. I disagree. I actually think it's nothing like an opera. I think it's much more like a tone poem, much yeah. like thus, thus spake Zarathustra, which yeah. is just those few notes. And it, it's, open to so many kinds of interpretations. It's an outline of the ideas. It's not an opera that tells you everything and is melodramatic and big. Um, so that's, that's how I feel about the movie as a whole is it really is music. Uh, it has a lot, uh, more akin to music than cinema up to that point. 
Um, and because of that, you know, it's very much a tone poem kind of experience. Yeah. Um, so then we, I, well, I don't want to, I, I do, I, I, I want to keep us moving along. So let's, so yeah, we'll, yeah, yeah. I, I, that's, I just wanted to bring that up because, oh, you no, know, part that's where, great. Yeah. part where he throws the, the, the bone and in, up into the air though. Yeah. And we follow it and then it cuts and it turns into the floating. And we, now we have a floating nuclear arsenal yeah. apparently. Yeah. Um, essentially to me, that's saying this cut indicates, um, the only significant idea humans have ever had is to destroy. Yeah, no, it's so because I I wrote down too. I go, I said, I go. The insinuation is that we can only keep discovering and building new things and never being happy with what we have. Yeah, and, and this, yeah, this idea that we will, you know, we've, we've, I guess we've explored all of Earth that we can. So let's we're just go out. And like instead of instead of fixing or working on what's there, let's just keep going. Let's just keep yeah. building. Them. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I totally totally with you on that one. Yeah. So um, it's, it's, it's quite a, it's, <laughs> it's quite a dark, dim view of the human race. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, no, I totally. Um, yeah. so then, you know, and I think, so we get to the point where we're going to meet Haywood eventually. We're going to mm-hmm. see all the fun, the fun ways that they, you know, the floating pen and all the cool stuff that they do within right. the ships. And that's great too. But, uh, the, the, ch- I, there, there's a, there's, I I'm, I feel like I'm gonna sound like such a like a, like an uber millennial and like you need to keep me entertained and keep me focused. But there's there's so much lingering in this movie, uh-huh. and uh-huh. I I don't know how much like when when we first see the like the big giant circle rotating ship, I was like that looks good by any any date standards. I love mm-hmm. how we're floating through. We're getting a sense of where we are. Oh, but then it just it just keeps going. It just keeps going, and and. I, there was like there was and they didn't they weren't showing me a lot of different things, which is why I was like, oh, man, I. In my opinion, that's the point, though. I I think that it's this is supposed to be, you know, this is a commuter trip, you know. Yeah, this this isn't like space is so amazing. Wow. Look at all this stuff. Wow. Cool. No, it's kind of dull. It's kind of mundane. It's the ordinariness of it all well, that I, I think I think that it was true in 1968 as well. No, and I and I think that there's, I think all the stuff that happens that we like I didn't like everything that's on the plane or watching like and trying to watch them dock and then even him getting off and like oh this is he's clearly at like a spaceport not an airport but he's at a spaceport. You can is it like a Howard Johnson logo in the background <laughs> yeah. and like I that's all great like and and I don't I I really liked the matter of factness of all of that I just uh-huh. it, in a movie and it, the movie's not crazy long it's about two and a half hours two and a half hours yeah there's 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 ah I hate to say this because like I'm also a big fan of like I, I like his long like I think Barry Lyndon is a great film and that movie lingers mm-hmm. a lot but yeah. I just, and I'm not, uh, it sounds like I'm complaining. I'm not complaining. I just think they could probably, they could have shaved some of that down. Well, they did already. Well, that's <laughs> between true. The pre- that's between true. the preview, between the preview and the, and the final release, there was like 19 minutes, I think, cut out yeah. of the movie. Yeah. Um, so personally for me, okay, now I, I should throw this in a little bit. Um, I've seen this movie probably, you know, half a dozen times, maybe more than that. But the one time that I really saw it was I saw it uh, when it was for its 50th anniversary. I saw it at the Cinerama in 70 millimeter. Yeah. 
and that's kind of the only way to see this movie. Yeah. I mean, I it I honestly felt like I had never seen it before I watched it that time. I walked out of the theaters going, I have never I have never seen this movie until now. Yeah. Um and you know, and I watched it in the I got that 4K transfer, you know, and that's what I watched on it today. Yeah. And it's I love it in that it's beautiful, it's pristine, but something about seeing it with an audience on a gigantic screen like that is like, uh, this is the way to see the movie, you know? Well, and, it, um, and that's interesting too, because it's not just, not just because of seeing it on a big screen in 70 millimeter, but mm-hmm. you know, seeing this at the time, I mean, there was all, all kinds of accounts of people walking out going, what the hell is this? And, and yeah. just not, but then, you know, and Pauline Kale kind of talks about it in her review. The, I didn't read all of it, but she talks about like how college students from coast to coast kind of knew, oh, this was the movie to trip on. And like, this was a movie to, yeah. s- and not, not necessarily get high, although I'm sure people <laughs> did, but like that this was a, it was a hip movie that like young people yeah. were talking about. And, and, and seeing it in the theater so many years later, what's great about it is that people who are, you know, lukewarm about the movie are not going to be there, right? People right. who want to uh, like become one with the movie are going to be there, and so that I mean, I I'm envious of seeing it on the big screen, but also because you you were seeing it with a group of people who absolutely wanted to be there. And it was interesting because they actually had to add uh, showings of it. I'm not surprised. Uh, yeah, because so many people were interested because it sold out. Um, like I think four shows and you know, that's part of, as part of their 70 millimeter fest that they had at the time. Yeah. Um, so it was sort of like, where do we fit it into the schedule? You know? Um, so they added a couple more, uh, dates to it, but part of the lingering that you, when you watch it on a really big screen, the lingering of it, you just kind of notice more and more that's going on around, You see more and more of the detail. Um, and for me, the, the more I watch this, the less I feel the time of it, okay? Because when I first saw this, I was like, oh, my God, this movie goes on forever, you know? But as I've watched it more, I feel that less, okay? And it's weird. I, I don't know exactly how to, to explain that um, other than I, I – it just feels right. It doesn't feel – too like too much to me and even with some of the jokes that are kind of silly you know like he's drinking the corn out of the you know the high c boxes essentially you know is is and you know reading the the (laughs) the big list of instructions on the toilet yeah um, yeah is they're just kind of these weird (laughs) they, they, they feel like jokes you know. Well, and I, I think one thing I'll, I'll say in, in regards to, to my, you know, you could probably trim it down and is, is funny. I, I think I felt the time probably the most of all for this watch because, yeah. because I am taking notes, you know, and I, sure. it's, it's, I, I always have a hard time wanting to watch movies like, and, and I'll, you know, I enjoy this movie and, and I, I, you know, the light, the light tunnel stuff is all, it's all good with me too. But yeah. like having to take notes for a chunk of movie like this, it's oh, it's tough because it's like, and maybe maybe part of it is just like, well, I haven't written anything down for a while, so <laughs> do, do yeah, you know what I mean? Enough. Like, I, I sure, and, sure, and so you know, and like I said, that's that is a that's a nitpick to, of all nitpicks, but um, yeah. yeah, I just figured I'd throw it out there. Um, well, one of the things you talked about getting onto the 
um, the uh, space station that I thought this was a note that I took is this commoditization of space, you know, Um, Pan Am and the Hilton and the Howard Johnson's and Bell Telephone. Everything is for sale up there. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like even all of our all of our tendencies that we have on Earth have just transferred up into space um, eventually. What's so great. What I love about this, this little chunk here before they get to the briefing is we're getting some of that Kubrick from from uh, Strange Love, some of that satirical. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I also love like so he comes out, he he has the video call with his daughter and he comes out and he runs into the lady that he recognizes. We have like uh, Dr. Smishlov there <laughs> and he sits down and I that my favorite kind of writing is like all this. Like he goes like, well, we were hoping you could clear up the great big mystery of what's going on up there. And and they keep referring to this mysterious thing and how people, you know, you can't get through and it's, you know, it's a, people are talking about a, it could be a, something that could come spread to the moon and how we want to be careful about what it is. And, but I love the, the writing is specific to them, but it's vague to us. And I love that because all that yeah. does is bring it. I, I lean in more. I'm totally into it. And I, I think the overall, the overall direction uh, for the actors to play everything really straight and matter yes. of factly, I mm-hmm. I love and I th- yeah I was I was gonna be, I was gonna be curious about what you had to say about the performances in this movie. No, I genuinely yeah. really like them, and I yeah, know I too. know that uh, the I mean that's it's really Kier who as as David who's who's like the main person in the movie. Yes, but I I gotta tell you one of my favorite parts of the movie is Haywood's briefing. I, oh yeah, and it's yeah. so and I and I I'm and I I've been thinking about it since I watched it. Like, what is it that, what is it that I like so much about this? And I think it again. I think it's just the way he's just simply explaining everything and and, and not giving it away because we still don't know what they're talking about at the end of the briefing. But mm-hmm. his way of like you know we're asking you to do a lot and you know here here's this that and the other. I really, really loved the 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 cover story and the discovery and and just how he's talking. I I got I, it's so weird, and I I can't fully put it into words. But I really liked it. it. I just it kept me leaning in every second. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Um, it's like there's so little dialogue. When there is, you just kind of pull yourself into it a little bit. Yeah. yeah. By the way, if they if they ever and they shouldn't, but if they ever remake this movie. The oh, guy, God. the guy who I know, I know, but the guy, <laughs> the guy who played Haywood looked like Clive Owen just back in 1968. I was like, oh, get, okay. Get okay, Clive yeah. Owen in this movie. Cure mm-hmm. Lake could probably still play Dave Bowman. Probably. My gosh, that guy does not age. I swear. <laughs> I mean, uh, um, okay. So then, so and I, I'm not trying to skip over all this stuff, but so, and then yeah. it, what this leads to though, is um, our crew taking a shuttle out to what 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 will discover is the monolith and this is where we get the line that it seems to have been deliberately buried and that it was buried about 4 million years ago. And so mm-hmm. now we've we've gotten the sense of time and what's happened and then we see the monolith. And the reason and so the reason I bring up I brought up the thing earlier about uh slow pans or or, or no moving at all is that there's a moment when the when they're going down the ramp when it switches to handheld. Oh yeah. And yes. And I I suddenly was like, like what a what a simple filmmaking device to let us know that something is not right, something has yeah. changed, and because 
everything is so locked off up until then yes. or on a dolly or yep. on, yeah, just very Kubrickian kinds of movements, you know, of the placements of the camera yes. and to suddenly have it go handheld. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. And, and so, and what's And then what's, what's lovely about it is that we get a few minutes of them kind of walking around and going, what is this? But, and it's, there's no, there's no dialogue. There's barely any mm-hmm. sound. Right. Right. And then, that you know, we get the, the the photographer trying to get the the scrunch together, and he's about to take the picture, and then that that buzzing comes in, and it's great because because we whether we know it or not, that switch to handheld was leading to the buzzing. Was le- this this was yep. the thing that was going to go wrong, and um, I also love the repetition. We got it in the Dawn of Man sequence where we first discover it, and we get that that upshot of the. Monolith. I love that shot. Yes. yes, and then we get it I again. Was trying here to decide too. if that was my favorite shot because you've got. <laughs> You've got that um, on the dawn of man. It's the sunset with the moon, and then here it's the uh, and the sun kind of over it, and then here it's the star field with the earth, right? Yeah. Oh man, it's it's so good. Yeah. Um. So and again, I feel like I just kind of I I kind of blasted through a lot of stuff there. No, that's okay. Um, you know, I got to throw in one thing: seeing this in the theater when that damn buzz goes off. <laughs> That's one thing when you watch it at home, you can control the volume when you're watching it in the theater, you can't. And it is piercing and it is extraordinarily loud. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, but the thing is you get the point. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And I remember, I remember cause I, I mean, sound, I I'm okay. I usually am okay with different volumes of sound, but I actually like covered my ears when, when that went. Because yeah. it was that loud, so it's something. Um, okay, so then we get to the Jupiter mission. We jump, we jump eighteen months there into the future, um, and now we're with. So, and at this point, we're about fifty-five minutes in. We're not quite halfway through the overall movie, but we're with. We're now at the biggest, like with the people we're going to follow through the most of it. Yes, um, uh-huh. and uh, and this is where I think this is where I think the the filmmaking, the actual film direction of Kubrick really gets to shine all, yes. all the cool, like watching um, uh, Frank run around and the different shots we see of how they do it. Um, the, it, it was just all, it was all so great to see. And then we get this great bit where they're, they're eating dinner and they're watching this, uh, this interview that they did. And we get to learn about them a little bit, but we get to meet, we really get to meet Hal who, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't want to blanket statement this, but is there is there a more pivotal non-human character in a film? Oh, boy, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I know. I and, probably and, that's, not. and that's I know that's tough because I'm sure there are some Star Wars heads who are yelling yeah. at me right now. And that's fine. <laughs> saying, saying, you know, see R2-D2. Or, and, yeah. and honestly, that's who comes to mind is R2-D2 because, you know, that's sort of like that's but. R2-D2 is clearly inspired on some level by Hal. Oh, Even if yeah. it's just, you know, his eye, you know, yes. the one eye <laughs> yeah. that he's got. Um, so, yeah, just that analytical sense. I love, though, that they decided just to make it a stationary computer yes. and not to have it be a robot. Because that I, was the original concept. Yes. When I, when I heard that, I was like, oh, man, that would have. How awful. It, yes, it just not it would have it would not have been good. And it's funny, it's decisions like that. Like if if it had been a robot, 
I don't think Kubrick would have made the 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 real good science fiction movie because it it falls yeah. into it feels like it falls into well maybe maybe they weren't tropes then but it feels like a trope now to just have a droid or a robot or a something. Well, there was a trope then. I mean, you had you know, Robbie the robot in Forbidden Planet, uh, which is a good movie. I mean, I'm sorry, that's a good science fiction movie, Stanley. But um, <laughs> it's uh, but you know Robbie the robot is kind of comic relief in that though. I mean, where Hal has to be believable as an innocent and a villain at the same time. Uh, oh, and I'm oh, so glad you said that. <laughs> well, cause, cause it's so funny. Cause I remember, so we're watching the interview and we're hearing that we're hearing the buzzwords, you know, the 9,000 series is the most powerful computer ever made. It's foolproof and incapable of error. And it's great. And then we see, we see him whip. I think it's Frank's ass at chess or maybe it's Dave. I don't remember. Um, yeah. I think it's Frank. And so we get, supposedly there's a mistake in that in the chess playing though. You know, I've, I've I don't know if that's true or not. I've I've heard that for years that that Hal actually makes a mistake in playing chess. And I hope I hope that for the for the 37 people who noticed that and didn't like the movie for it, good. Yeah. <laughs> um. But uh, well, the thing the thing is, Kubrick would have done that on purpose because he was a master chess player. Too. That's true. That is true. So, yeah. yeah. Um. But I love. I think what I I love so much about this and the one mo- like I at before I don't know if I ever really sympathize with how. Okay. But then there's the moment where Frank gets the message from his parents, and he's watching. Oh it, yeah. But he's laying. He's like, "How can you lift up my head? Bring me in more. Okay, take me down, How. And it's uh-huh. like. Hal is running the ship. He's the reason why the three other crew members are safely in hibernation. He's the mm-hmm. reason why everything's working very, very smoothly. And yet he's also like, he's a slave on the ship. He is. Yeah. It's very true. It's very true. Uh, I'm also that this is a little bit off what, from what you were saying, but um, that scene is important because that's the second reference to a birthday. Oh yes. Floyd's daughter's yep. birthday. Frank's birthday and then we have one more birthday mentioned later that i will bring up then that's true that is true um let's see oh yeah but yeah you're absolutely right he is a slave to these guys Uh, he's chill about it yeah (laughs) no yeah very much he's unemotional but you're right there is very much that um dave seems to have more of a relationship with hal to me Yes. You know, I, he's showing him the, his pictures yes. and he's uh, and different things like that. Whereas Frank is just super kind of distant and is like, oh, it's just microchips. Yeah. But and, and what the, you said is the feeling. Yeah. And it makes sense because Dave is the one that Hal goes, can I can I talk to you? <laughs> you know, because, you know, I was wondering if you were having second right. thoughts about it's the like, mission. It's like sitting down with his psychiatrist. It's, 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 yeah, it's kind of an interesting, uh, uh, relationship. Can I ask you a personal question? Yes. Yes. It's, uh, fascinating. It's fascinating because, you know, ah, man, I I say this because, you know, I think what, uh, Elon Musk or, you know, that that they have that, they have that robot that they're, that just, um, they just, the Tesla bot unleashing. To, yeah, the Tesla bot that, yeah. they're talking to, that I just saw the advertisement for today and I was like, oh God, it's 
it's 2001 it's Battlestar Galactica on the way man yeah. <laughs> just I'm sorry I'm, maybe I'm a bit of a, a Luddite you know that's I've been accused <laughs> of being that in the past or you know sort of I was the last person to get a smartphone in in, in the world I swear but well we could I God, we could use some more of that right now <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh man. so then we get, I mean, we really get to the, you know, again, and, and, and again, no, no diss to the movie, but we get to like the most plot pivotal part of the movie here, which is that, um, how, so how says that there's this, there's this thing that's going to fail a hundred percent fail in 72 hours. They go yeah, to replace communications. Uh, it's, it, it, it runs the communications, I believe is what it is what that uh unit does i believe yeah yeah and uh and it's funny because how how's kind of being pressed a little bit Mm -hmm. and all it's that sort of it's like just a moment just a moment and then then he announces it and so they replace it and and you know dave frank is really skeptical dave is too but i think he's trying to be more diplomatic about it They, they they replace it they do the whole thing and it comes back in there and it was fine and uh you know that the, the the twin computers saying that this one is wrong and Hal saying that it can only be attributable to human error and it, like like this is great like yeah and everybody's every because because Hal's voice is so matter of fact anyway we're watching these humans tone it down and everybody's being so chill about it and that's what obviously that that's what ratchets up the tension because you know everything is mm-hmm. not fine well speaking of the performances in this it's almost like I know Kubrick basically told them just to keep playing it down, play it down, play it down, you know, um, be empty vessels. It's almost, they almost become as robotic as Hal. Yes. You know, um, it's like, they're the automatons aboard this ship as well. And, um, it's just a fascinating way for them. But, but the thing is you see interviews with astronauts and stuff like that. They're kind of like that. You know, well, and I think it's that <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, and you, you mentioned, um, <laughs> you mentioned unspooled and I, I recently, I think listened to their Apollo 13 episode and okay. one thing that they, they mentioned, and I think you could hear it in, um, uh, Oh, what was is it? Uh, level levels voice when they, from real life interviews is he just, yeah, he just sounds really chill. And, and there's a sense of like, you have to keep your cool because if something goes wrong in space, you're talking about minutes and, well, I mean, the famous line, of course, from there, Houston, we've had a problem, you know, is you hear Tom Hanks and he, Tom Hanks delivers it fairly matter of fact, but you hear Lovell actually say, it's like Houston, uh, we've had a problem here. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's nothing. It's like, <laughs> we're just, you just work the damn problem. Yeah. So I think there's, yeah. I think there's great. I think there's a practical kind of reason for it, but also mm-hmm. exactly like a metaphorical, like they're just as robotic as Hal is. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then, oh man, I, so then they go into the pod, they turn around, they turn off the comms, they make sure that Hal can't hear, they express their their concerns to each other. We get we can see Hal in the distance, and then we get yeah. slightly closer to him, and then we get right on that dot, and we can see that he's reading the lips. Yes. And that reveal is so good. Uh-huh. It's so uh-huh. good. That it leads to I think my biggest problem with the movie, and I'm gonna ask you a I'm gonna ask you a question. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Does this movie need an intermission? Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that's well. The thing is, when I first saw this, I saw this on VHS, and there was no intermission. Oh. 
Whoa. Yeah, the intermission was removed uh, for the and as and also was the Otter Act and the uh, and the sort of overture at the beginning. Um, it just wasn't on the tape, so it just kept going. Wow, that's probably the yeah. way because I because I we get that stuff and I'm like, oh yeah, and like I don't know, I'm on such a like a a nice tension build there. Uh-huh. And then it like intermission. I was like, oh. Well, the thing is, it was cool um, in the theater to have that intermission. Sure. Weirdly. Yeah. Uh, enough, actually. Um, because, I mean, because sort of everyone was just kind of buzzing about the movie. You know, yeah. you went out into yeah. the lobby and everyone's like, oh, how'd they do that? Oh, my gosh. How do they do that? Because um, there was still that sense. Even this 50 year old movie is like, how did I, I there are a few shots that still kind of baffle me. As to how they got them done. Yeah. With the limited, with the technology they had available to them at the time, you know? Well, and um, you can see why somebody like Christopher Nolan appreciates this movie so much. I mean, I, I think no, sure. the inspira- obviously the inspiration for the rotating hallway and in Inception yeah. comes from this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, there's no doubt about it. And, and obviously, to quote my good friend Ian, Christopher Nolan is no Stanley Kubrick. I'm aware of that. I still, I still am aware of that, but, but I, you can totally see the inspiration that this movie had. Oh yeah. This movie, I mean, even, I mean, I, you, you've, I know that you've seen Nightmare on Elm Street not that long ago. Um, the whole Tina's death where, you know, she's being dragged up the wall. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've seen um, them, by the and, way, I've seen those... them all now. Ah, welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> I won't ask your opinions on them just now. No. Oh, well, yeah, that would take, there's so many of them. I, it would take, it would take a while. I know. I know. Well, if, if you do ever do a Nightmare on Elm Street episode, you know who to call. So. I do. I do. I know you are fond of that movie. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So then, yeah, then we get to, I mean, and we're pretty much, we're, we just go, we go dialogue list for a long time. and uh, Very long time. And the, the sound during that sequence when they're EVA yeah. is, I love that. Because it's sort of the opposite of what we get in so many science fiction movies now, you know, where there's just layer upon layer upon layer of sound, um, which is great. I mean, I love it. You know, I'm a big Star Wars fan. And I think what Ben Burt did, especially in the original trilogy, was really interesting. But what you have here with um, just that it's, it's like you're inside the helmet. Yeah. Uh, You know, you're inside the spacesuit. You're just hearing that hiss and the breathing. Yes. And that's it. And then when there's silence, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's the silences in this movie are, you know, excuse the cliche, they're deafening. No. And that, yes, I, it's, it's, I, I, I tell my students this all the time in a different way. I go, we can only understand movement in its relation to stillness. We can only understand yes. sound in its relation to silence. And you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. And because he's chosen to focus on the breathing, we know what that means when the breathing goes. We know that that means that Frank is done. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is the breathing, um, I didn't think about this until this watch is a lot like the heartbeat in the shining. Yeah. Oh yeah. Great point. It's sort of, it's sort of this, um, this organic human function that's always there, uh, that is mechanical. Yeah. It's almost like this blending of, of, of the human and the mechanical. And, uh, that's so much, I think that's one of the themes of this movie in some ways is the dependence upon technology. And, Oh um, yes. Oh yeah. So that's just, it's powerful stuff. And it's, you know, it's, ah, 
I don't even know what to, how to elaborate on that to be honest right now. Well, but. it's so it's so it's so interesting. I mean, I wrote in all caps around this time right here, where actually it was right after I I quoted that you know I'm sorry I'm sorry Dave I'm afraid I can't do that he won't let mm-hmm. him in, and yeah. I wrote in all caps I go we rely on te- and technology too much and it's funny because th- this was made before I mean before so many things didn't have personal computers i mean this movie the the fact that this movie the special effects were not generated in any way with computers not even for motion control cameras yeah is pretty astonishing and the amount of you know the 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 tvs and the headrests the video calling i mean all the things that essentially this this you know and i and i saw i saw the clips of the guy from from bell labs talking about like you know yeah, video phones work. You know, we we introduced that at the World's Fair, and it never took off. But that's pretty yeah. much accurate. And and every- now we're talking over. You and I are talking over Skype right now. Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of this uh, this funny thing, you know, that hey, we're living in this world in some degree. At oh least. yeah, we're living beyond this world in some degree. And what's funny is, you know, for them to be able to accomplish this for the film. You know, they didn't have, they weren't using video assist. They were using film projectors and they had to hand draw and animate every single one of those screens and project them from behind the fuselage that they built. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. And and then they would spin the room and the first time they tried it, all the projectors fell off. (laughs) It's just, you know, spools of film. I mean. It's it's just mind boggling, yeah. The detail work that went into making this. Well, and it's funny. Too, I mean, and another, you know, I I don't want to derail us too much from the two thousand one talk, but like, in a completely different way, that Cooper gets to do that same thing with detail and Barry Lyndon. Just, but so so not with technology, candlelight and being outside and like right. trying to recreate these paintings essentially on film, which he does, and and like the the. You know, I know, I think the the Shelley Duvall um, uh, Shining stuff gets, comes to the surface a a lot more because of just how he treated her and how he got the performance and stuff. But I feel like that's, I don't know. I feel like that's one blemish. And maybe, you know what, screw it. I'm sure he has more blemishes. But like what he was able to put on film, you know, and I, I, like I said, I re-listened to a lot of episodes pertaining to either, I I listened to our people talking, but I listened to our Kubrick episodes too. And Ian, mm-hmm. Ian, I'm quoting my friend here and he goes, he goes that Kubrick is the greatest filmmaker of all time. And, right. and obviously I I don't know how to, you know, everybody has their, uh, their opinion of that, but like, that's a hard one to debate. It really is. It really is. Um, it, as far as when you think of the influence, the technical skill, um, that, clearly went into everything and you know the sheer levels of genius as far as his visual style i mean he invented the look and if anyone else tries it it's like oh you're copying kubrick yeah uh because his style is so distinct Mm -hmm. uh that i mean it's yeah i it's it is hard to argue i mean he's maybe not my personal favorite filmmaker but sure, um, sure. But gosh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I, it's, I, I, I can't, I can't argue the point uh, coherently, to be honest. So. Um, 
so so we've 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 lost Frank and Dave goes after him and and Hal won't let him back in and I I just I I went well first we get Dave and you know we because a few times we've seen the um the caution explosive bolts on the pod of course yes letting us know that that's going to be how we can get in and um that fisheye lens on those too yeah is just whoa and it's interesting one thing i did realize while watching it on you know obviously a flat panel tv is that some certain elements of a lot of the shots kind of bulge in the middle that's sort of taken away a little bit on a cinerama screen because there's a curve to it yeah it curves at the edges so um so some of that uh, is is just different when you see it on a big screen. It doesn't it doesn't do quite that same effect. Um, so so it's it's interesting that you know if you have only seen it on a flat panel television, you're getting a little bit. Or in my case, my first saw it on a tube television, so it was <laughs> bulging outward. You know? Yeah. Um, but it's it's just a it's an interesting. Um, it's just an interesting thing that I think, you know, having made this movie for a big screen and for a certain type of screen, he took into account when making the movie too. Uh, just some of those attentions just to photographic details. Yeah. So, uh, and that's then, a little bit. Oh, off no, the no. Subject. I apologize. No, I keep no, on no. That's going, going into some of the technical stuff on this. Um, yeah. Because I find it fascinating, uh, a lot of it. And I find the technical elements of this movie, um, draw me in more than uh, for a lot of movies, to be honest. Yeah, no, for sure. And and I think that's, it's that Kubrick detail. Um, Yeah. And just also just the kind of technical technological movie that it is too, I think um, plays into that, you know, even from a story and aesthetic standpoint. Yeah. Um, So yeah. Anyway. And then how, you know, we get, you know, (laughs) Dave comes in and Dave's on a mission and I love, you know, how wants to know what he's doing. He goes, I really think I'm entitled an answer to that question. I can see you're really upset about this. And, uh, and then, and then Dave starts pulling out all the memory cards and stuff. And, um, how starts to degrade and I, he kind of reintroduces himself. And I love the callback to bell labs and how they were able to make a yes. robot sing Daisy. And so it starts uh-huh. to sing Daisy and, um, and then the message plays and then they talk about, you know, intelligent life discovered off earth and how yeah. it's origin and purpose remain a total mystery, which is great. I think that's actually that. I think the key to the movie is right there. It is, it is. And you know, I, I have, and that was the third mention of the birthday was Hal's birthday. He mentions when he went online. Uh, yes. Um, and so at the moment of his death, he's recalling his birth. And I think that the birthday element is sort of a thematic importance, <laughs> you know, uh, for where we're going with this too. Well, and it's funny because there's also there's kind of a seven stages of man. Um, Shakespeare, Shakespeare's uh, Jay Crease monologue there is. here. I mean, not just at this moment, but also yeah. throughout the movie, you know, where mm-hmm. we start and where we end up and where we end up isn't too far from where we were when we started. Yeah, it's a circular movie in, a, in some ways. Um, and you know, one of the things I think it, I think it was Elvis Mitchell brings up that, you know, back in the sixties, you could walk into this movie at any point and it would just keep playing, yes. you know, and yep. you could just stay. And, and, and I could see that being, uh, this being a movie that you could watch from any point and then come back around to where you started. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and I think that would be an interesting exercise to try <laughs> at some point, you know, just to just to watch it from. Oh, I'm going to start from the Stargate scene and yeah. then watch it around to then again well, or, or something like that. Speaking of that, man, let's we're I think we're here. And uh, yeah, well, I actually have a quick oh, question for you. You said yeah. you felt uh, sympathy for Hal during the scene with Frank and the birthday um, the message from his parents. Did you feel any sympathy for Hal during his death scene? You know, it's so funny. I, <clears throat> I, I, <throat> I, I, I do. And I, I mean, it, it's so, it's weird. Cause like how, how's asking all these questions and he, he clearly wants to know what Dave is thinking, but he's just essentially killed Frank I don't, yeah. it's tough. I, I go, it's so funny. I go through a lot of different emotions about it because obviously it's like, well, look how you just, you murdered, you, you would, you planned the death of somebody. I mean, that's you, you killed him. But like when, when, when he starts to degrade and like all that stuff, it's like you do, you do feel bad, but it's, it's tough because we're talking about something that was programmed by humans to essentially to, to serve the, the, the crew, to serve the men. I, it's tough. I, yeah. At the end of it, I don't know, which I also think is, yeah. it's, 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 it, you know, it's purpose will remain a total mystery. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm kind of with you on that, but I think that's also a yeah. great, that's a great sign that, you know, I get to the end and I'm not, I'm not totally convinced one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh man. So then, okay. So we get to, we get to the, the light show, we get to Stargate, we get to Jupiter and beyond the infinite. Um, I don't even, okay. I don't even know how to logically talk about the, about not about when, when the pod stops and we're in the room, but about, okay. About the light chunk of this. I mean, he's, he's going through time and space. It's, it's a trip. Sort of, I mean, is it like a wormhole? Is it a black hole? Is it, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, sort of described not in the movie, but just sort of outside of the movie as the Stargate. Um, you know, is he being flung to some area, other part of the galaxy? Uh, I, I don't know what's going on entirely. And even, and all, you know, um, the color spectrum, like the colors are coming uh, on left and right for a while. Then it switches to top and bottom. And then, yeah. and then it kind of morphs into this kind of lava lamp looking material. And then, and then it's, it's, it's like land, it's like familiar looking landscapes. Just obviously yeah. the, the color's been totally tweaked on it. One of the things that's interesting about, and this was mentioned that book I mentioned earlier, they talked about how they did that because, um, the, uh, Technicolor was done in three strips at the time, right? Um, so you had different layers. You had a blue layer, a magenta layer, and a yellow layer, I believe. But if you put them in the wrong order, it changes the color scheme. So that's why you get all the weird um, looks like his eye, the close-ups of his eye. Yeah, yeah. You, so so when those, when those uh, strips of color are put in different orders or say only two of them are used or maybe um, – they're just put in whatever variation of order you can put them in. You get all these uh, unique uh, color schemes that happen. Um, and they did the same thing with the landscapes. Cause obviously some of, one of them looks like it's monument Valley or something. Yeah, it totally. Yeah. And then there's another one that looks like um, uh, just like over the ocean or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And except I, it's, except it's green. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oddly colored. Yeah. 
So I, I know I'm, some of it was ink dropped into um, like paint thinner and industrial solvents and stuff and just the shapes that they would make as it spread out. Yeah. And like just a ton of light coming through the bottom of it and stuff. Um, so it's kind of interesting, just technique um, that, and this is where, you know, he says where you have Pauline Kale saying, you know, they stole some of these ideas. Uh, one of them was a John Whitney who did this uh, streak photography where you keep the, uh, the, the shutter open you know, and, and the light streaks. And, and so what they, and that's essentially one of the things that is done for this as well. There's animation, there's all sorts of interesting things, interesting problems that were solved in unique ways, um, by my behind the scenes, um, unsung hero. And that is, uh, Douglas Trumbull, who, um, really fascinating guy. Uh, he's in some of those documentaries, uh, yeah. those special features as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wish he would actually, um, do a demonstration of how we did it. Cause I can, I read this description. It's like, I do not understand how you did this. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just so bizarre. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's striking. Oh yeah. Oh, very much so. It's an incredible effect. Still an incredible effect. Yeah. And, and the fact that it was done practically. Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and. You know, you know, if and if nothing else, you just know that this is this is the journey. I mean, you're going through something, and and mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I know I, I I hadn't really felt that way in a movie, and I have I've only seen this movie once, but uh, Tree of Life has moments like this where it does, yeah, it feels very uh, ethereal and and open and vague, but also like it's it's your own, it's your own experience and whatever you you feel going through it. Yes, I, I know exactly the sequence you're talking about where, you know, she quotes from the book of Job, I believe. And it's like, you know, and it kind of goes through time and space yeah. <laughs> for for that whole, for a large section. It's very much like this in a lot of ways. So so then we we, we land in the room and I know, um, oh, see, I, I, I got to make sure I find my note. But you might know this too. I know they like they based the room essentially off of... Um, a hotel, and I, I thought I had it, but I th- think maybe it's at like the Dorchester, but I might have that wrong. But yeah, it's like a Paris hotel or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But what's great about it, and what I what I love though, is it's got this really old, elegant feel to it, and yet the bottom are these like lit tiles. Yeah, um, and so yeah. it's it's great because, and like I think I think it was Clark who was talking about how like like what if like it, I, and again I don't know if this is from the book and if this is official or if it's just like you know opinion, but like that. Like aliens, like could re could like sort of simulate a, like a memory and like have it be familiar to him, but not totally. And that's where like the like yeah. the floors can't match what what he remembered. Like it's an incomplete memory put out to like make to make Dave feel more comfortable. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a pretty good summation because this is supposed to be in the book. They they essentially literally say. Dave is in an alien zoo. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, he's like in a, in a cage in a zoo, but they've done it up to make him feel comfortable. Yeah. But things aren't quite right. Yeah. They can't, cause they're not human. They don't get it quite right. And one of the things that's, uh, you know, another technical thing, those tiles on the floor where I think were like thick plexiglass and they had these lights going up and the lights were so hot they would actually melt it <laughs> so they had to replace these tiles all the time um oh man 
just crazy um, just to get that look, that totally austere, um, completely sort of sanitized look that that room has. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then obviously, and, and then we get this really interesting I, storytelling device where, you know, Dave is looking out of the pod at essentially himself in his suit, but uh-huh. it's, it's an older version of Dave. Yes. And then it, that Dave is walking through the room. He sees a, a slightly older version of Dave eating at a table. Yeah. That Dave. Tur- oh yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, then he turns and then he sort of becomes who he sees. Yes. Yeah. And I love, that's one of my favorite things in this whole movie. Um, Oh my gosh. It's, it's kind of, this is the part though, that a lot of people are like, I have no idea what's going on. And for me, it was always kind of like, he's just, he's just getting old and dying. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of all that's happening, I think, you know, um, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, I mean, it's, I, I, I think, I think what is, it's the it's the interesting approach to the filmmaking there. I think yes. that can, that makes it more like, and it's so tough because it could be as something as 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 simple as, well, we didn't want to spend another hour showing him age, so we just did it in these really interesting cuts. I or, think it's also a sense that time doesn't really matter. Sure, in yeah. Whatever this space is, and well, so. and I think it plays into. I think you're, I mean, if if in the world that we are in, that it's like this zoo for humans, um, that watching this time. Uh, go go so quickly in this way would play into that like if i if i can't do anything other than be in this room then i think seeing these cuts like that it really it really speeds it along but it does it in a really nice way yeah i it's one of my favorite storytelling techniques used in the movie i and it's i've i don't think i've ever seen anything quite that comes close to trying to eat. i mean why would you even try <laughs> to to do that yeah. in anything else. I mean, now, it's so unique. Now I will, I will say that like, you know, other than the going through the Stargate sequence, I pretty much, and, and that's the thing like, like the Dawn of Man sequence makes sense. The, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, Haywood talking about Clavius and, and finding this thing that's been buried makes sense. Hal and, and the doctors on the ship makes sense. Right. Yeah. But then yeah. we get this thing, but then so Dave lands and, and you can you can make a story out of this. Even if you don't get yeah. the whole human zoo thing, there's something's going on. I, yeah. I will be the first to admit though that Dave's body going away and then having the little like the little baby in the bubble, or I, it's commonly referred to as the star child. Mm-hmm. Uh and then the star child like being out in space and 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 Zarathustra's playing again. I, I'll be honest, I don't totally know. <laughs> What is happening in the last few minutes of the movie? Yeah. Well, for me, this is my interpretation and, uh, whether I'm correct or not, I mean, I, I don't know. Right. It, Who knows? It, I, I don't I don't know if there, I don't know if there is a, is a correct to this. What I do believe is happening is that, okay. So when he's old and dying, um, this is where the birthday comes in again. He reaches out for the monolith. Yes, right? very true. It moves his hand in the same way towards the monolith as Star, as I'm sorry, Moonwatcher did in the in the opening sequence. Yeah, yep. And as and as Floyd does as well, though Floyd uh, is not touching an, a, a monolith that will um, do. It is, it is not a teaching one. It's a beacon. Yes. 
Whereas this is an, another one that's the teaching mechanism type. And he lifts his hand towards it. And he, just like Moonwatcher, was taken to this next moment of the evolutionary cycle yeah. by encountering this uh, monolith. That is what happens to Dave here. And he's, forgive the religious terminology, but I think it is actually appropriate, uh, especially in this closing sequence uh he's born again yeah essentially he is um he is now something he's the next step of human and this next step of human time is doesn't matter yes he's just an infant as this next step of human but um it's this this whatever this this human has moved beyond the physical, you know, the, the war bound, um, damaging your neighbor, damaging the other type of human that we are apparently now to being something that is, um, beyond the bonds of that. And so, um, in the book, they use the same line that Stargazer thinks are Stargazer. I think they call him Stargazer in the book, but Moonwatcher, he says, um, he he says star uh, moonwatcher didn't know what he was going to do next but he would think of something and that's what uh clark has bowman think at the end he's like he didn't know what he was going to do next but he would think of something i really like that uh yeah. and and i i i mean i i i mean rebirth i think i mean that's there and and i i think that part of me knew that but i really like you pointing out the way that moonwatcher approaches the the monolith in a in an awe-inspiring what can you teach me way versus the way that Haywood does, which seems like I'm going to figure you out. I'm going yes. to like there's there's sort of an exploitiveness, exploitativeness uh to Haywood. Yeah. Whereas Bowman, I think, is much more like Moonwatcher once again. Yeah. You know, teach me. Yeah. You know, what because I mean he's dying. I mean, what yeah. what what else is going to happen? And he's a sent and so I mean the fact that he can apparently move that that space apparently has no meaning to him any longer yeah that he can now be back near the earth and he's looking down at the earth it's almost it's all there's, there's something even sort of weirdly messianic about it like he would as this new human be able to teach the other humans no i think that's there i think that's there yeah. in some way yeah um, yeah yeah so, I mean, that's why I find the movie, I mean, supposedly, you know, and I don't know if this is exactly true, but uh, people would ask Kubrick, what is this movie about? And he would say it's about God. Um, I thought, I, I, uh, I, there's sure. something else, though. He's, uh, in a 1968 interview with Playboy, he said, you're free to speculate as you wish about the philosophical and allegorical meaning of the film. And such speculation is one indication that it has succeeded in gripping the audience at a deep level. But I don't want to spell out a verbal roadmap for 2001 that every viewer will feel obligated to pursue or else fear they've missed the point. Right. I like that. Right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think there is an element of this movie that, you know, because this is, I mean, from from like a purely scientific theoretical standpoint, it's Clark and um, there and Kubrick are tapping into the whole idea of you know um, of life on Earth coming from outer space. You know, yeah. Um, 
and so that's that's sort of one of the scientific underpinning theories that that is in here but um but it's an it's an encounter with you know i don't know if it's the creator i don't know if it's um you know the guides of some sort whatever these beings are that we thankfully do not see uh that's another great choice that they made yeah because <laughs> originally they were going to show aliens in this yep um uh, <laughs> that I know. Been again, a... great choice to not do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, and you know, because I mean, the aliens is, is the world of star Trek and star Wars, which are great. I love those things, but it just doesn't feel right here to, yeah. to know what the forces into this, you know, whatever these beings are. Yeah. Um, it's better, or if there even are beings, or if it's something else, I, it's better not to know. It's more interesting not to know. So any, I mean, I, I, we, I mean, we've gone through the movie, and I think because I, yeah. I still want to do our our top Kubrick films. So I guess my the last question I have is 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 there anything egregious that you haven't like like if if, if you didn't say it now you'd be like God damn you for not letting me say that. <laughs> no, I think I covered everything that I had written down. I mean, one of the things about this movie, like I said, it's that tone poem. It leaves you, it leaves so much space for you to interpret and think and ponder. And, um, but you know, the story is like nothing. I mean, there we've, there's, there's not much story. There's not much dialogue and that space, um, (laughs) you know, literal and, (laughs) and, you know, metaphorical is, um, there for you to fill with thought you know, yeah, and to fill with your interpretation, you know, and I think that's a beautiful thing. And I wish more movies did that. And, you know, um, some do, I think, um, you know, a 24 has <laughs> sort of this reputation for doing things nice and slow, yeah. uh, giving you lots of space to think about those things. And I think that is a direct result in some ways of this movie. Oh yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, you know, but, um, so you can see this influence of this film in surprising ways in surprising places too. I mean, it it, obviously the science fiction film was never the same after this, a movie like, like, uh, Danny Boyle's sunrise, I think oh, yeah. is, is something that owes a lot to this, uh, in, in, in a positive way, you know, and then you have, um, um, you know, I think the, there was a movie a couple of years ago, Passengers, not a great movie, but it had some interesting ideas, but like the spinning, uh, there's a, there's a spinning centrifuge on it too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> different, different things that you see, uh, today still. Um, so obviously the science fiction, but also just pacing and circular storytelling and, um, giving the, uh, openness for interpretation. Um, any movie post-1968 that does any of those things, I'm convinced, owes something to 2001. Yeah. I I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with, with those sentiments big time. Um, <laughs> yeah. So let's... Uh, well, I, well, we'll do we'll do stupid question first and then we'll, we'll, we'll head to this. Okay. So, um, Brian, do you think that 2001 A Space Odyssey should be in the book? Uh, let me think. Of course, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I do too. I do too. And and we're, we'll do our top fives here. And uh, yeah, I mean, we talked a lot about it. I, I will say like, this is definitely 
more of a movie that I think I appreciate that I en- than I enjoy watching, but I still enjoy watching it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. I, I know a lot of people who I, I was talking with an, another podcaster friend, and he was like, because I told him I'd love to talk about this movie with him sometime. And he was like, I just don't like that movie. I've tried. <laughs> it's like, I know I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It's important, but I just don't enjoy it. It's like, I, I get that. I get that. I didn't enjoy it. The probably first two t- or maybe even three times I watched it. I don't know why I persisted to watch it again, but, um, uh, eventually it just kind of clicked with me and I, just, I, I got it. I, I realized what was really going on, what I was getting out of it too. So, so, uh, just for our listeners, uh, if you don't want to go back and re-listen to our Lolita episode, I'm going to uh, just quickly run through what Ian's top five, uh, Kubrick films were, uh, from that episode, uh, f- going from five to one, they were a clockwork orange 2001, the Shining, although he was very clear that it was the UK cut of The Shining and not the uh, the American cut. Uh, number two was Barry Lyndon, which used to be as number one until after we did our episode on his new number one, which was Dr. Strangelove. So Fair enough. at the time yeah. of recording, those were his top five uh, Kubrick films. Uh, Brian, I'm going to open it up to you. Five through one. What do you got there? You want me to just do them all right yeah. in a row? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So my number five is, um, oh, I, I should, I should caveat that I have a feeling that if I had had a chance to watch a movie that is not on my list, it might be well beyond here. Okay. I've only seen, I've only seen Barry Lyndon once mm-hmm. and I just don't remember it. I didn't have a chance to rewatch it before this episode, but I have a feeling it probably would be on this list. Uh, if, if, uh, if I had had a chance to rewatch it. Okay, so my number five is uh, maybe a controversial pick is Eyes Wide Shut. Not I, that was my five on our first list. It it doesn't make my five this time, but I, but I I like that movie. I think it's a fascinating movie, and um, few movies uh, sort of mine the complexities of uh, marriage quite like Eyes Wide Shut. Yep. Uh, so I, I find the movie uh, very fascinating, very moving. Um, weirdly moving. Yes, <laughs> I no. should say. Oh, I, should I say. agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, number four and number three were jogging back and forth. Um, number four, I put Doctor Strangelove. Okay. Um, which would would be higher were it not for maybe just a couple of weirdnesses as far as order of scenes toward the end. Sure. Um, you, you know, I don't know if you know what I mean by that. Cause I mean, you have, you have slim Pickens flying out, you know, riding the bomb. It feels like that should be the end of the movie. Yeah. And then we have this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, I agree. So, we still have some yeah. war room stuff there. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and that war room scene is great. Yeah. Is the no, problem. Is. You yeah. know, it's like, it's, it's a wonderful scene. It's like, is it in quite the right place? Is hard is, is I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, so number three, I, uh, I'm a horror guy. So, uh, of course I had to put the shining, um, which I think is a great film and it's such a, it, it's, it's hard because I'm a big Stephen King fan too. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and, and the book and the movie are so different. What I think, um, ultimately I, I love is, uh, the savior of it all is Mike Flanagan with Dr. Sleep. Oh Yeah. 
sort of sort of making it all work. Uh, his, I'm a big fan. his director's Go. cut of Doctor Sleep is great. Oh, it's fantastic. It's it's honestly one of my favorite movies of the past, you know, maybe 10 years. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just really excellent. Number two is going to be a surprise to people, I think. Um, my number two is Paths of Glory. I just watched that for the first time the other night. Yeah. And here's the reason why. Um, for me, this is the perfect uh, convergence um, where Kubrick had um, sort of the technical prowess, right? But also was still, it still connects emotionally. Uh, whereas so many of his later films, uh, 2001 is a great example, are, are so distant. They're yes. very cold films, including The Shining, yeah. I think. The Shining is a distant and cold film. Um, and, that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I, I think that there's, I love in Paths of Glory, there's, and it's a quick, short movie, I tell you. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it packs a lot into that, into that 90 minutes, um, less than. But it is just, uh, to me, it's that perfect convergence of sort of the technical perfection and the emotional resonance. Uh, and that's why it's my number two. And then you can probably guess my number one is uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Well, there you go. Um, so uh, 2001 uh, it was my number four. It is now my number five on my list. Okay. Oh, I, I, but, well, and I agree. I, Barry Lyndon would be like my six. I, 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 I so enjoyed it the first time I saw it. I've only seen it once. So I, I do owe it a rewatch. Um, I saw it so long ago and I've, I've only ever seen it on, you know, DVD on a, a, again, a a tube TV, I'm sure. Uh, So I, but I got, I bought the criterion edition in the last sale. So I'm, so I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting that one. Uh, my number four, uh, is the earliest of his, or, uh, the earliest of the films on my list. And that's the killing, which I, man, that movie is such a ride. Sterling Hayden is great. I, uh-huh. It's a great heist movie. I, oh, there's just so much going for it. I really dig it. I really dig that movie. My uh, podcast co-host and I uh, talked about that movie on the Cult Movies podcast uh, with Anthony King uh, a couple weeks ago, and it was just a blast to revisit that movie. Such a great movie. Yeah. One of the best. One of the best heist movies ever, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, okay. My number, okay. Where are we at here? Oh, my number three, my number three is the same as yours. It's the shining for, I mean, the reasons you said, I mean, it's, 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 it's such a tense, awkwardly, awkwardly intense movie to watch. I, I, I don't know what else to say. (laughs) You know, what's kind of interesting about it. The more I watch it, I realize how funny it is too. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's sort of oddly, bizarrely funny. And I never got that humor when I was younger. So, uh, my number two is Dr. Strangelove. Um, and my number one isn't on your list. My number one is a clockwork orange. Um, yeah. And I know it's, it's tough and it's hard, but that, and I know I, I mentioned this when we did it on Lolita, but, uh, it, it was the movie that got me into Kubrick. And I, I so, I so appreciate the filmmaking and, and what it's trying to say. And I, and I, and I think Malcolm McDowell's great in it too. Oh yeah. And the, here's the thing about a clockwork orange. I've, um, <laughs> That used to be my favorite. Okay. There, there was, there was a time where Clockwork Orange was my favorite, uh, Kubrick film. 
I still greatly appreciate it. I understand. I realize it's a great movie on another day. Maybe it would be on my list. Um, over the past few years, I, I guess I, it just sort of got edged out by some of the others. Yeah. Um, I mean, the subject matter is obviously difficult. <laughs> yeah. Um, to have, to have such a, he's such a despicable person, but so incredibly entertaining <laughs> and yes. likable that, that, that cognitive dissonance, I don't know, uh, sort of shoved it down the list a bit for me over the years. And, you know, and I would probably watch it again tomorrow and go, Oh God, this movie's incredible. You know, and I know it's an incredible movie, <laughs> you know, and I love Malcolm McDowell in it, but, um, for some reason it sort of has just kind of edged down the list over the years. And, and that's, and that's totally fair. And, and actually it has been a while since I've seen it. I just kind of, it, I know where it kind of stands in my memory of all things. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, the thing is I, I've, I've sort I've been doing a Kubrick rewatch and I actually started this a, a while back. So I decided to watch everything. And the only ones I hadn't seen were uh, fear and desire and some of the short films. Um, but, uh, so I, I wanted to be up through the killing by the time we um, did our episode on, on cult movies. And, um, and so when you said, Oh, you're watching a lot of Kubrick. It's like, yeah, well it, it's sort of been going on for a while, uh, but I'm probably going to skip over a clockwork orange for now because that 4k is coming out. Yes. That's, and true. I want to, and I, and that's the way I want to see it next. I, I, I really, I mean, cause I, I have it on DVD. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's still, um, but it's funny cause I've owned that movie on VHS. I've owned the first DVD release and the second DVD release. And so now I'm just going to jump up to 4k on it. Yeah. Makes sense. So, Makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I truly appreciate you taking the time to talk about this dense, big, deep movie. Um, yeah, truly, truly appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really am glad I was here. Um, wish could have had this conversation, of course, with Ian. Um, but uh, I think, like you said in an earlier episode, with us in spirit, um, you know, having that uh, camaraderie here among us uh, as we talk about this one of his favorite movies. So that's that's um, it's. I'm, I feel honored that you asked me on to to do this. Oh, well, the the pleasure is all mine. Um and and please check out check out Brian's writing at Manor Vellum and at, at and uh Bloody Disgusting. Check out his pod Movies for Life. I'm assuming that's where all the places where you can get podcasts. It, it is all the places you can get podcasts and you can find it on Twitter if that's your thing. Um it's at Movie Life Pod. Um, and and all my writing is also on Twitter at Brian D Kuiper if you uh want to check any of that out perfect and yes and you can find us uh on twitter and on facebook um and we're on spotify and all the great places too um and uh thank you for listening stay tuned next week as we jump uh, a few years into the future we're now into the 70s and um we're going to be talking about a, a film that i get i mean all these are ian's favorites but one that he was so surprised i hadn't seen and i will remedy that soon and we're going to be talking about american graffiti that will be the next film. Uh, but until then, uh, my name is Adam, and we will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>